Well, as we come to God's word, let's pray together. O Lord, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Well, we come this morning to this great parable. Oh, thank you, Joel. We come this morning to this great parable, the parable of the ten minas or the ten pounds. And this is the very last parable that Jesus taught just before he entered Jerusalem. He's been on a long road, heading on the way with his face toward Jerusalem, setting his face, right back in chapter 9, in fact, of Luke, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And what a ministry we've seen over all of those chapters and events and teaching that lead on the way to Jerusalem. And Jesus made us aware of this right from the beginning, didn't he? Right back, back in Nazareth when he began his ministry in the synagogue. You might remember he, he spoke from the prophet Isaiah that here we have the acceptable year of the Lord, the great jubilee of God's salvation coming, the blind will see, the poor will hear the gospel, many will flood into the kingdom. Think about when John's disciples were not sure whether Jesus was the one they were waiting for or not. What did Jesus say to them? Look around you, see that the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the poor hear the gospel. I am the one that God has sent. And he showed that in all of his healings and his teachings, in his interactions with the leaders. On every side we see here God's king presented to us. God's king on his way to set up God's kingdom. And where else but Jerusalem will we see that kingdom come to pass? So you can imagine the expectation on everybody's hearts and minds as they see Jesus nearing Jerusalem and his disciples growing in confidence as he does so. Here he is about to come into David's royal city. The kingdom is about to begin. And then Jesus tells this parable. And there's a big, jagged divide made. We think we know where the story is going to end, and then it stops. And we change direction. And Jesus warns them not to have that expectation as he brings to them the surprising message of how his kingdom will come and how they must be faithful even though it is a kingdom they do not expect with a faithfulness required of them far beyond and more surprising than what they imagined for themselves. We see this parable, the parable of faithfulness in the apparent delay of the kingdom of God in Christ. In a sense, what we have here, if you like, I, I, I enjoy 
uh, a lot in my spare time to read a lot about the Second World War and listen to podcasts about it and all the rest. And it's as though you've had the, the phony war continue for a while. It seems as though it's a bit of a stalemate. And then, in 1940, the German forces, with a great surprise move, seem to completely conquer the Western Allies and overtake the Netherlands and France and most of Europe falls under their control. And the, the leaders of those, the, the free leadership of those countries must escape. Think about the French leadership having to leave. Plenty of them stayed and compromised, but those that left to carry on the fight. And they left resistance fighters behind, didn't they? To carry on the resistance against an overwhelming hostile force. I was just listening to, I was listening to this week a podcast all about Jean Moulin, who was one of the great French resistance leaders. Uh, faithful even to the end. He was tortured for a week and did not give up a name. Didn't give up any details before he was executed. He was having to hold fast, maintain the line, keep true to the idea of a free France, which would one day come. And so it came four years later. But there was a need for faithfulness to the cause in the meantime. No easy victories. No sudden advent of a new order, a new age. But faithfulness. Faithfulness in difficult times. And so we see here Jesus teaches the same, doesn't he? Here I am to come to Jerusalem. Yes, I'm coming to Jerusalem. But do not expect a kingdom of your design, of your desire, as I come through the cross to plant my kingdom and then leave. And go and leave you apparently absent from me until I return. But I leave you my gifts. I leave you my presence by the Spirit. I leave you the means by which you might be faithful in the age that is to come. And he does this through this parable, through a parable. And the parable is part of the message too. The parable is part of the message here. Parables, sometimes we think about the parables in the New Testament as just being lovely stories that give us vivid illustrations of the truth. And they often do that, don't they? But parables are actually meant to be surprising and shocking. They're meant to be disturbing at times. They awaken faith and they also harden in unbelief. And we see both of those things in this parable. Jesus tells a surprising story about an, a, a nobleman who must leave even as he comes as the king of a surprising kingdom. And he too must leave earthly glory for that final day when he returns. Now, when he's telling this parable, it's helpful to know a little bit of the historical context too. So Jesus, at the time that he told this parable, he's living in a time when, yes, the Romans were in control of Palestine, of, of uh, Judea and of Jerusalem. But there had been, over the past generation, many Jewish kings and princes in that area. 
and they were not allowed to be kings or princes except by the agreement of the emperor in Rome, Augustus Caesar. So you would have heard of Herod the Great, that Herod that we read of in the, in the Christmas story. He had to go to Rome to receive his throne. And then his son Archelaus, about 30 years before this parable was told, when Jesus was just a little boy, Archelaus, his son, had to go to Rome to confirm the kingdom for himself. Now the problem for Archelaus was he was cruel and paranoid, just like his father, but he was also incompetent, unlike his father. So he had many enemies and he dealt with them in brutal ways. 3,000 of them were slaughtered once at a Passover by his soldiers. So as he goes to Rome, the Jews sent other ambassadors to Rome to say, we don't want Archelaus to be king over us. Eventually, Archelaus received the rule. And when he came back, you can imagine how he dealt with his enemies when he returned and took his rule over Galilee. But isn't it surprising to think that Jesus, of all people, with that memory vivid in people's minds, would take to himself a story that sounds so familiar. Obviously, he's not saying he's corrupt. He's not saying that he's evil like Archelaus. But it's surprising at the same time, isn't it, that just as Archelaus must leave to receive his kingdom, so Jesus, the true and living king, the true son of David, will not have a kingdom like they expect, but must leave, and they must be faithful until the day that that kingdom is revealed in glory. So that brings us then to what he asks of his servants. I think we understand now the situation his servants are in. Here we have a nobleman leaving. He's surrounded by enemies. The kingdom seems to be in doubt. He leaves his ten servants behind, each of them with a mina. And you can see here he's asking them to be diligent and fruitful and faithful in the midst of opposition, in the midst of hostility, until he returns. And he gives each of them the same amount. He gives them a mina. Now, what is a mina? Well, a mina is a, is a sizable sum, but not huge. So it's a roughly equivalent to three months' wages. Sort of like having your fat annual bonus at the end of the year. If, you, if you're in a job that gets a bonus. I never get a bonus, but if you're in that sort of employment, you get a bonus. It's like that, but it's not going to be the same as a full year's wage. It's a, mean, it's a, it's a sum of money that can be useful in order for you to continue on in the mission you've been given. So in this sense... Although this parable seems very similar to another famous parable, it's actually substantially different too. So you know the other parable I'm talking about, the parable of the talents. Remember how there were three servants and one was given five talents, the other one was given three, and the other one was given one. Well, a talent is very different to a mina. A talent is a huge sum of money. A talent is worth 20 years' wages. You could buy 
a house. Maybe not in Surrey Hills, but maybe in Croydon Hills, you could buy a house for a talent. And so when we think about the parable of the talents, we think, well, they're great gifts that God has given us, aren't they? And how are we going to be faithful with those gifts? And some people have different gifts and different capacities and how they can serve God with them. All those different gifts. How are we faithful with the gifts that God has given us? There's some of that in this parable, but I think the stress here is not on the giftedness. It's on how we are going to be faithful in hard times, in a surprising kingdom, facing hostility, the overwhelming tide of it. Are we going to be faithful with what God has given us, with the grace that he has given us, with the witness he has provided us, with that living line we have to the Saviour to nourish our faith, hope and love? Are we going to be faithful? And that's what we see here. If you like... Going back to that World War II imagery, imagine here you're a special operative being parachuted down behind enemy lines in occupied Europe. And you're given the tools for the mission, aren't you? You're given your bombs and your submachine gun and your, and your supplies. And maybe you're given a bit of cash to get you by, to get the mission done. That's your minna. And you are to be faithful and, and leave to the Lord what the results will be. Leave to your commander what the ultimate objective of the mission is to be and how successful it will be. And that's what we see here with these ten servants. They are to be committed to an absent king, a hated king by many, and still to be faithful, faithful to him. We also perhaps get a few hints from this story about the way in which Jesus wanted all of his teaching to be reflected through it as well. If we look later on in the parable, we see here that faithfulness, the fruitfulness of faithfulness is celebrated, isn't it? And yet the, the nobleman who goes away is also a severe man. And we have that in Jesus' teaching, don't we? The tree is known by its fruit. The tree that does not produce fruit is taken out of the ground, is cut down and removed. The branch that is not faith faithful is cut out of the vine. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. We see here the severity of judgment as well as the promise of grace for faithfulness. So we see then, we're set up in this parable, aren't we? We have here a nobleman departing, quite clearly, a reference to Jesus himself. And yet it's surprising. The kingdom is not about to come. But he must leave to receive it. And then he will return. What will his disciples be in the meantime? And that is clarified, isn't it? Quite early on in the, in the parable, that is clarified by the great event of this nobleman's return. We see that very early on, isn't it? In verse 15. So most of the parable is told from the perspective of the return of this nobleman. And that's clearly referring to Jesus in his return. 
at the end of time as he ushers in his final glorious kingdom. Now, it's striking, isn't it, that the story of what our life is like now is told through the lens of that final day. That's a big part of this parable. What our life of faithfulness or unfaithfulness looks like now is presented through an event that has not yet occurred when Christ returns on the day of judgment. That tells us something about our own priorities now, doesn't it? How do we judge the shape of our lives, the shape of our Christian lives even now? So often we come to the gospel, don't we? We come to God's word for help simply to deal with the challenges that we see around us. To help us with our marriage or family or work or study. We know this is not the ultimate purpose of the Christian gospel, but so often we use it, don't we, as a help for the priorities of the present. As an aid to help us through life now. But this parable teaches us instead, doesn't it? That we judge the priorities of today in the light of that great day when Christ will return. Everything is, everything is focused on that day. So we need to look at the challenges of today in the light of the priorities of the great day when Christ will return. And so we see on that day three groups are revealed, aren't they? Three groups are revealed to us. We have faithful servants, we have an unfaithful servant and we also have the enemies of the king and the ultimate judgment that comes upon them. That's what we have in the light of judgment day. So let's think mainly about these faithful servants. We have these faithful servants and uh, when the Lord returns, he finds one, you know, the first one that he comes to, comes and says, Master, your minna has earned ten. Well done, good servant. You are faithful and little, have authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Master, your minna has earned five. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. So we see here the minna comes from the Lord and it does the Lord's great work of faithfulness, doesn't it? It does the the Lord's great work of fruitfulness. Isn't it striking to see here how these servants come to the Lord and they say, it's your minna that has done this work. Isn't that a wonderful element to this? It's your minna that has done this work. You know, when we come to think about the day of judgment, which book do we read in the Bible which talks most about this? It's the book of Revelation, isn't it? And that's important. See the connection between the two. The day of judgment, the, the final day, is a revelation. It reveals things as they really are. It takes away the veil. It takes away the fog by which we sort of, we, we, uh, we clamber through. We stumble through the fog. We don't really understand the true lie of the land. And God's great day of judgment reveals everything. It's an apocalypse. It uncovers 
and it uncovers the reality of things. And even these servants, as they seek to be faithful, it is revealed to them that it is God's great work in them that keeps them so. That's the great command, that's the great great encouragement that Paul gives in Philippians, isn't it? What does he say in Philippians 2? Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you by his great power. It's God at work. That's the marvellous thing revealed in this. And that's why I think in the end that these minas are not about our great giftedness, like the talents are. It's not about our giftedness. It's about our faithfulness. Here we have these servants. They've been given what they need to be faithful to their Lord until his return. They are to fly the flag for their Lord. They are to exercise that hope and faith and love that he has given them to be faithful to him. And that is what we are called to as well, isn't it? We are called like Abraham to labour for a city not made by human hands, but whose builder and maker is God. We're to look at Isaac as a provision, completely impossible by human means, and it comes by God's blessing. But after that, we are to be nourished by such a faith. We're to have a hope that is born, not from the hopefulness of our surroundings, but by the sure and certain hope of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, have, we are to have a love that flows not from our naturally liking each other, but from the love that the Father has given us through the Son, and so we love in return. We are to live in that sense by secret wells of water that the world does not see. We are to live by the mina that the Lord has given us and maintain faithfulness in the walk of this world, amidst a hostile present age. But not to look at that, but to judge things by the day of revelation, when we will see things as they truly are. But there's another great thing that is revealed on that day too, isn't there? There's another marvellous thing revealed on that day, and that is the reward. The reward. Notice there, you've been faithful in small things, he says to the servants, you shall be given rule over much. You are faithful in very little, you have authority over ten cities, and authority over five. What surprising things are revealed in that day. The day of revelation upturns our scale of things, doesn't it? Now it's easy when we look at those verses to think, well surely this is teaching then, that the more we get done in the Christian life now, the bigger the scale of our reward will be in the eternal kingdom. Input now equals massive output later. That's often the way we approach this. That's one way potentially of reading this, but I don't think it's the right way. Because what I think we actually see here is just the surprising triumph of God in his kingdom. There we all were as, you know, here we all are in this present age as as the people of God. We've heard God's instruction. We've We've seen Christ presented to us. We 
Know that he says tough things, but in the midst of all of those difficult things, we see the goodness of the Lord. We've tasted and seen that he is good, that with him are the words of life. Remember, Peter said that, didn't he? When all the other, when all the offended crowds are melting away in John 6 and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, were you going to leave as well? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. We must stick with you. So there we are, unaware of what the ultimate rewards will be, having no sense of what God has in store, and yet we cling for life to the words of Christ. We drink in his grace. We hold on him by faith, by love. We have our hope nourished in him. And then on the day of revelation, the day of revelation, we see it all. We see the fruits of it all. We see the wonder of it all. And it doesn't matter if it's five cities or ten. It's just the surprising, extraordinary work of God's kingdom. That's what we'll see. And it doesn't matter how small, even, you know, I love that at the start of Ephesians 6, you know, the, the, armor, the armor of God. What does it say before that? Having done all to stand. Isn't that wonderful? All that you might do is simply stand for Christ. That might be all that you do. And yet it issues forth into the wonders of the new heavens and the new earth. All through his work. The wonderful work of our Saviour. So it is not about the scale of reward. It's about the surpassing, surprising beauty of the triumph of Christ. There's this wonderful passage in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. There's a lot of somewhat dodgy theology in The Great Divorce, but it's got some beautiful scenes in it. And one of them is of a, a woman... It's, it's, a, it's a vision, it's, a, it's from a visit to heaven. And there's a woman who in ordinary, in her earthly life, was just a laundry maid. Really poor, working class, uh, no, did nothing overtly amazing for the kingdom of God. But as we see her in her heavenly glory, she's like a queen. And she's going down the highways and there are crowds praising her as she goes down the highway of heaven. And all that occurred was that she simply was self-denying and, and faithful in her marriage and in her family. And she loved her Lord even in the small sphere in which she worked and lived. And it redounds to great honour and praise in heaven. But that's not for us to know yet. There's a veil between us and that final reward. What is our command now? Be grittily determined. Be faithful. Be like that resistance fighter in occupied France, holding on through the threat of arrest and abuse and torture and death, holding firm to that dream of a free country one day. And that is us now as God's servants, as God's faithful servants. Be faithful. Even with that mina that is given to you, be faithful and wait for his reward. And know that your Lord is good 
and loving and gracious to you. But then we come, don't we, to the unfaithful servant. The unfaithful servant. And it's very solemn, this, isn't it? It's very serious for us to read about this unfaithful servant. Because he's a servant amongst the others. That means he has the same Lord. He hears the same Lord's words. He receives the same minna that the Lord gives to all the others. He receives the same commission as all the other faithful servants do. And yet what is the Lord that he sees? He sees the harshness, the severity and not the goodness of the Lord. He says, I thought I see you as a severe man. In some, the original Greek word is austere. Where we get the word austere from? Hard. Bitter in a sense. Tough. And Jesus' words can be tough, can't they? Better a millstone be hanged around his neck than, one of, than that he offend one of these little ones. If your eye offends you, cut it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. The blood of all generations shall be required of this generation. Jesus speaks severely, doesn't he? And if we do not have faith to see the goodness, the sweetness of the gospel, and see only its outer husk of severity, we can be misled, can't we? But in a sense, this unfaithful servant chooses to be misled and refuses to see the good and refuses to put his faith in the goodness of the Lord. And so what does he take from the message of the gospel? He drinks in judgment and not gospel. He, he sucks out of it a law of self-righteousness that he knows he cannot fulfil and not the sweetness of God's grace to him in Christ. He takes the wrong thing from the message and he is unfaithful. And that could be us as well, could it not? You know, you, you hear the message of the gospel week in and week out, don't you? And the wonderful truth of God's word washes over you week in and week out. And hopefully daily as you read your word, as you study it with your friends, as you worship together with God's people, you hear that same word. You receive that same message of the gospel. And yet you can take it for your judgment. You can take it and refuse the rule of the Lord of the harvest. You can take it and deny the Saviour who has given it to you. And this is revealed on Judgment Day as well, isn't it? The last day takes the curtain away, reveals all things, both for the faithful and the unfaithful. And in a sense, even judgment is surprising, as well as the reward. Notice there, the unfaithful servant who could have at least just got interest from an online savings account. The unfaithful servant has even what he, the little he has, and that is given 
to the faithful one, the one who has ten. And even the onlookers are surprised, aren't they? But so it ever is, so it ever is with Christ's judgment. He has come for the raising up of the humble and the tearing down of the proud. He has come to take the Lazarus who is at the, the, the door of the rich man and put him in Abraham's bosom and to condemn the rich man to hell. He comes with surprising judgment as well as surprising mercies. And it is the great day that reveals all things. And so I plead with you, you all enjoy the privilege of the open word of God. You all enjoy the wonder of Christ's message going out with clarity and grace and love all the time. How terrible it will be if you sit here in this assembly, in this church, year in and year out, and you never taste and see that the Lord is good. And you find yourself completely, completely shaped by the hostile culture around. And you refuse to judge your days by that great day. And on that great day, you are revealed with nothing. But it does not need to be so. You need to come to him now. Think of the great privileges given to you. Use them for his glory. Be faithful even as we await his return. And if the message of the unfaithful servant doesn't seal it for you, look then at what happens to the open rebels. If such a thing happens to the hypocrite, look at what happens to the rebel. As this king, this nobleman, asks for all his op those, open rebel those who openly rebel against his rule to come and to be slain in front of him. There's some very serious words at the end of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 66. You know, where Isaiah is such a wonderful prophet, isn't he? He talks about the glories of the gospel and the bringing of all nations to the banquet of the Lord. And they will feast there from all nations in the goodness of God. But then what shall they do? The very last verse of Isaiah 66. And then they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh jesus speaks with the one voice a voice at one with isaiah doesn't he if such a thing begins amongst those who are part apparently of god's people yet are not faithful how terrible it is to be outside of God's kingdom completely in open rebellion against his rule. To be offended by the cross. To laugh at the kingdom of Christ. And to see nothing in it. To scorn the fact that it works in such a surprising way that it does not deal in the power and the influence and the wealth and the wisdom of this world, but proceeds by the way of the cross. To despise all of that, that will be revealed on that great day too. And those who made little of Christ and his kingdom, 
that will be remembered on the day when his kingdom is revealed in all its glory. So I ask you, please, come to Christ now. Receive him now. Put down the arms of rebellion and embrace him as your Lord and Saviour. And put that mina to work in faithful love and service to him. Well, let us pray. Most gracious, merciful Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word, how it reveals all things as they truly stand. Forgive us for so often uh, living in the moment in ways that uh, deny the truth of your word. We are so often uh, distracted by our own priorities. We look out on the world according to the eyes of just uh, ordinary common sense and not with the eyes of your word. We pray, Lord, that we would remember that great day when Christ returns and that we would be found faithful in him on that day. In Jesus' name, amen.